HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, and this is the last show of 2014. Um, so ha- hope everyone has a happy, ha- happy holiday um, and a great new year. If you're still looking for gifts, I have a couple of books that, that really wrap up uh, not only the year in food, but a, a good chunk of the recent food culture. Um, these are ginormous books. Um, one of them is called The Kitchen, the cookbook, Recipes, Kitch- uh, Recipes, Kitchens, and Tips to Inspire Your Cooking, and is written by the editors of The Kitchen. And the other one is Savour, the New Classics Cookbook, and it has a, a thousand recipes. So both <laughs> really great um, volumes in the way we cook today. Um, so I'm really excited to have the editors of these books here with me. It is Sarah Kate Gilligan, co-founder of The Kitchen. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you. And we have Helen Rosner, who is a contributing editor for Sever, also the national features editor at, at, at Eater. And she was um, like a main editor of this book that I'm holding. Yeah. Thanks for joining, Helen. Thanks for having me. So, okay. Books aside for a moment, um, you know, both Sever and The Kitchen have been around. At, well, they're very different genres. Um, Sever is a longstanding print magazine with a great web presence that has been growing gradually over the years. Um, the Kitchen started out as, I guess, a sister of apartment therapy back in 2005, mm-hmm. before we started saying 20 um, for dates. <laughs> and... Um, so, so are you guys like competitors or what? <laughs> no, I don't think so at all. I think one of the great things about food media yes. is that um, it's such a rising tide kind of area of the world. I think um, I have friends who work in, in other topics in media, like fashion and politics and news, and it's always so cutthroat. And I mm. think in, in food, there's this wonderful sense of camaraderie from publication to publication. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't agree more. People always ask about that. And who's, uh, or who's your main competitor? 
And I think by nature, the subject of food literally is about dividing and sharing. Um, And I think that kind of flows over into into the media. Do you guys, like, toast to each other and, like, eat together, go out and... Gosh, go Helen the same. and I haven't done that, but, but we, we should. should. <laughs> we clearly should. Yeah, the food writer. I was Party just talking together. about this with my friend Adina Sussman, who's a food writer. I love her. And she was saying, what is it with these other parts of media? They're so competitive. Mm. Food. I have so many food writer friends, and it's totally true. There's no, there's no sense of scooping stories mm-hmm. or anything well, like that. I think you hit the nail on the head, though, Sarah Kate, because like it is the nature of the topic. I right. mean, especially with with. Um, brands like Sever and The Kitchen, where it's about cooking mm-hmm. and coming Home together and sh- versus restaurant celebrity chef gossip or something. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, in my, in my other life at, at Eater, we concern ourselves with news and with restaurant chefs, and that can be a little bit cutthroat. But in the world of you know a recipe and and cooking and sharing and community building, which is really kind of at the core of it, and it sounds very cheesy and airy fairy, but it's really true. Mm-hmm. I think you know if someone publishes a beautiful recipe for a dip or a roast chicken or whatever it is and you make it you feel like you're a part of that and right or sometimes you're inspired by it and you can say that and it can be your own recipe like right. oh you know i just read this this uh piece on com, and there was this beautiful you know pork roast and so i decided to make something similar and i but i did it with this because i had you know grapes instead of apricots or and then they get yeah. Traffic, we get traffic, and everybody's there's a, there's happy. A lot of room for collaboration. Yeah. I mean, the, and you know, we we can say this because we're on the editorial side. I think if you <laughs> asked our our ad sales people, they would be they'd be telling a different story. But, <laughs> yeah, but that's not what we're talking. That's about. That's not our right. job. Well, okay, so I know that you know publications evolve over time a lot too. Um, how and there's more of them now than ever. I mean, also you've got a million blogs. Um, I don't know anything about that, a but uh, I think there are you know, <laughs> literally there probably are more literally a million. a million. Yeah. So how do you how do you try to differentiate yourselves um, amongst the Bon Appetits and you know the all the other food publications, uh, Serious Eats, you know, like all the web based or print based um, publishing. Uh, that's pu- like the publishers. M- I think that's the million dollar question. I think if somebody were to come up with a concise you know, formula for how to have a distinct identity and differentiate yourself, they would go become a media billionaire. Right. Mm. I mean, for us, I always say part of the magic was just the timing. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not so sure if we just decided to do what we do starting today, that it would be as successful because part of growing traffic on the web is there is just a time quotient. I mean, you can have a big bump in traffic because of some mention that someone did, but that's not real. So you're it's saying like, like losing water weight, in, you know, like you're not yeah. actually thinner, in, but yeah, but because we started 10 years ago, we've had time to grow, but also stick to our mission. So if there's any, if there's any other thing that we've done, I feel like it's really, really focused on home cooking and nothing else. Right. Like we, uh, we do have a like full on rule. If it, I won't take any PR pitch, but if it's a restaurant, I mean, I, I like eating out because for me, it's a break from what I do, but I, we write about home cooking, and that that is it, mm-hmm. and, and that encompasses a lot. It does. Yeah. I mean, but and I think it's Sever. You know, Sever does too. Sever focuses on home cooking in the yep. sense that we run recipes that are designed to be cooked at home. But then there's this sort of additional editorial angle to it, where you know the the magazine is celebrating its its 20th anniversary. I shouldn't even call it a magazine anymore. The brand, mm-hmm. um, the website, the magazine, the books, the everything. Um, 
And since the very beginning, Sivir has been really focused on the idea of global cuisine Mm -hmm. and authenticity and kind of getting into people's homes and finding out what they cook outside of this very sort of often myopic kind of New York media-oriented sense of home cooking that that Mm -hmm. those of us who live in New York and work in media tend to focus on. So, um, you know... Every home cooking recipe that would run in Sever, I think, is the kind of thing that would be very much at home on a site like The Kitchen. Mm-hmm. And frequently the recipes that run on The Kitchen are, are the kind of thing you might see in the pages of Sever. But our angle on that, um, the way we differentiate ourselves, um, is by taking this kind of global perspective and saying, okay, you know, here's a recipe from Senegal, or here's a recipe from Russia, or here's a recipe from, you know, California's Central Valley. And really taking this regional geography first, human first. And what's cool is that it's all found in the same brand. It's all found in the same place rather than like a strictly Senegalese, you know, publication or a cookbook. Um, Like you get a wide uh, swath of cooking. Yeah. And Um, you get a sense of how much everyone has in common, mm -hmm. which can be really exhilarating. So I know that this is not Sever's first book. Uh, I actually had James Osland, uh, former editor, on the show to talk about the... (laughs) I forget. I forget what it's the, the way we cook. Oh, the way we the way cook. We, the, the way we, we eat. Cook. The way we cook. No, the way we do we... something related <laughs> to food. <laughs> oh, well, track back. But this is the kitchen's first cookbook. Yes. So that's exciting. What made you decide to do it after 10 years? It's funny. It's of web great, you know, great web content. Yeah. The, the, the f- you can get for free. The funny. Exactly. <laughs> right. Shh, this don't is, say that. This okay. is the question. Why spend money on a book mm-hmm. when you have the the site for free um what's so beautiful about the web is the way that it's just constantly moving and um it's so fluid in terms of the publication in terms of the interaction with readers that you can see comments you can mm-hmm. you know if you there's can a, adjust recipes right, if, if there's a typo a you can fix it, it yeah. or, <laughs> you know but print you don't have that but with print you have this tactile um sensual connection that for me the web does not provide and yeah we can all take our iphones into our kitchens and you know look up a recipe on an app but for me there's still something so captivating about a cookbook Mm -hmm. as a as a as like a work kind of like a like a cake being a work and i think food people if they really truly love home cooking they love that that work and that item that they they can interact with on all these different levels and so um, a book, I think, is an important part of a brand, and it definitely isn't the big money maker, mm-hmm. and it definitely requires a ton of work, work, and always more than you expect, and always takes longer, and always is more painful. But it does sort of freeze a moment in time, and that was really important to us. But you just mentioned, you know, it takes a ton of work. How much work do you put into, uh, you know, one piece on, the, you know, probably... The- the thing about a piece on the web yeah. is, you know, there's a, there's a, it's on my laptop. It's, there's a whole, there's a whole little back end and I just plug it's, things in and yeah. I test the recipe and I write a small head note and I shoot a couple of pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the book, and this is the part no one talks about, it's not just that it's publicity and layout and 
trim size and paperweight and, and negotiating contracts and negotiating contracts and oh that you know we actually can't have that recipe because it's we can't get it down to one page right. so if you want it to be two pages you have to fill the other half of the second page and then that moves everything one page over and it's like it's there's so much that goes into it. It's a real it's a different concern. attitude. It is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think, you know, for Sever, I, um, besides working on the cookbook, primarily worked on the digital stuff for Sever. Mm-hmm. So all of these considerations about, you know, trim size and, and what recipe fits on a page and where are you going to break a recipe? Like, mm-hmm. if you have a recipe that is a really long one, like our recipe for, for um, schnitzel, which is this epic i mean it's a phenomenal <laughs> recipe but um and largely the recipes in this book are sort of short and approachable and and manageable but there's this recipe for schnitzel in the sandwich section that is tremendous it's tremendous it's a fried chicken cutlet and then there are all these sub recipes within it for the sauces that go with it and it's and there's the sidebar and there's the head note and they're all really long because they tell the deep story of the schnitzel sandwich and um and we had to think about where to break the recipe because you sort of end one column and you go into the second one and and this book is jam packed with recipes. Oh god, it's a door- yeah. it's phenomenal. I mean, it's great. You could it's cut- a it's a jigsaw. It's like <laughs> great work here. Thanks. I mean, I, it all in. Well, I, but like Sarah Kate was saying, it it takes a freaking village to make mm-hmm. a book like this. Yeah. And and I think for for the two of us, we both work primarily on the web to think about these print considerations. Which all of my my colleagues on the print side at Sever were laughing at me when I was thinking about there are these there are these things that if you work on the web, you are largely unaware of called widow lines and orphan lines. So a widow line is when the first line of a of a paragraph is alone at the bottom of a page and you have to turn the page Big to read no the rest no. of the paragraph. Uh-huh. And an orphan is the same thing but with the very last line of the paragraph. And it's like <laughs> I I came out of book publishing many years ago. My first okay. real job in media was I was a cookbook editor and I was all about widow and orphan lines and then I spent six years doing nothing but internet. Mm. And it doesn't matter. I had this rude awakening that widow and orphan lines are really important. And now you're into yeah, code and on all that fun stuff. Um, but okay, so we tackled form a bit. What about content? How do you choose recipes um, from like the archives of Sever and the kitchen and add to it? And how, how did you select them, first of all? What makes, I mean, are these both like sort of best of, like anthologies? We think or? of ours as kind of a greatest hits collection. Yeah. Um, yeah, yes and no for us. There are, so uh, the publisher wanted mostly new content. Ooh. So that question of why would you buy it if it's Ooh. for free? So we, I would say maybe 20%, 25% of the recipes in that book are from the site, but totally reworked, okay. reshot. There's nothing that we cut and paste and put in the book. The remaining recipes are um, original, kind of based on what we feel our readership likes, which is... Um, what do they like? They like healthy, hip, com- comfort food. There's they like pho on the cover. Vietnamese pho, beef pho noodles. That that was a bold statement. Yeah, that's, that's the second. For that's the an second, American cookbook. It's the second cover, and oh, um, yeah. <laughs> that's what a whole was other on the radio first, show? Wait, what was on the first one? The first one had a lot of uh, a lot of different photos from throughout the book. Um, there was sort of this potato egg thing. This is a collage. Yeah, and anyway, we went with that one. We ended up having to cook, as they say in Photoshop, that beef a little bit because who wants raw beef on the cover of an American cookbook? <laughs> that's Except that's what pho is. And so, yeah, there was all kinds of chat about 
the cover. Okay, so stuff but, that your so that, customers that, lean, not customer, reader is yeah. leaning towards. But when we were picking the ones that came from the site, it was kind of culling through, this is something my co-author Faith Durand and I did together, culling through our archives, and at that point it was eight years of content, seven, eight years of content, and looking, pulling things out in different ways. One was merely by traffic. Okay. What are our top yeah, hits for traffic? And, you know, knowing how to make a pork chop on the stovetop is our number one. I mean, people are Googling that every day at f- between 4 and 6 p.m. And mm-hmm. if you do, you land on the kitchen somewhere in the first two or three hits. So that was important. But yeah. we didn't just take that content from the site. We just came up with a really great, simple, approachable stovetop pork well, what's job. really cool is that you as opposed to a cookbook author coming into this out of the blue you kind of have this like great rich market research of what people right. want to read and cook right so and also the book is about half a little less than half of the pages are a cookbook the rest of them are kitchen um, we have 10, 10 real kitchens mm-hmm. we have a whole um, cooking school where we go over 50 essential techniques we have, yeah. um, we have a section about setting up a kitchen, maintaining a kitchen, yeah, keeping it clean. It's thirty it's very, day plan. It's very the kitchen. It's very the kitchen. So a, a lot book. of that is also yeah. in some way pulled from the site, but also totally reworked. Mm-hmm. Very fun. So Helen, how did you pick a thousand recipes? Well, it's actually not a thousand. The cover oh. is a lie. Um, <laughs> it's it's one thousand one hundred and something it's either 27 it's to lie that way yeah that way. <laughs> it says plus it says so, plus There's, okay. and it's a like a, a meaningful plus it's 1100 plus um wow. recipes this i mean it's a doorstopper of a book um so the guiding principle that we had in putting together this collection of recipes was um not just a silver greatest hits list um though a, a lot of these recipes are from previous issues of the magazine um but sort of a global greatest hits list and mm. and that's the the question I think raised by the title of the book, which is the new classics. The yeah, first thing everybody asks is, "Well, what's a new classic?" Isn't the whole point? Because I'm seeing some classics here. Well, I think that it's a little bit of a fallacy to assume that classic just means old. Um, I think our notion of classic is frequently sort of calcified in in the the high end French cuisine of the the 1960s and 70s, and we think about something like like bœuf bourguignon or like Cote d'Ivoire, all those sort of bleh, like Frenchy words. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the classics, and then there's American home cooking classics like turkey tetrazzini or, you know, um, uh, the that amazing casserole of, of hamburger and pasta and tomato sauce, Johnny Marzetti, um, and those are American classics. But then, but then um, there are classics that are broader than the sort of white middle-class Americana of the 60s through 80s um, that... Yeah, like, you know, Moroccan chicken with preserved lemon tagine and olives and the schnitzel, and you got, you know, the the bibimbap, you got... Exactly. It's, a, it's an incredibly global, inclusive notion classics. of classic. Awesome. And when we started making the list, we had no idea how big the cookbook was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, the, the process for creating this cookbook mostly took place on the living room floor of my apartment going through every single issue of Sivir that's ever been published. Yeah, I was which... I was thinking it might be something like that. That's <laughs> that, cool. Yeah, and so, you know, over the life of the of the magazine and the website, we've published close to 10,000 recipes and mm-hmm. we went through all of them and we you, you kind of know, I mean, they're all amazing recipes and they're all delicious and cookable, but some of them really are just like, oh, like, yes, that yeah. is so emblematic of a, of a place or a person or a time or a technique Very or something. Cool. Um 
and we distilled it down from 10,000 to about 2,000 and sent those to our, our editor, this, this patient saint what angel the? of a woman. And yeah. she was just like, absolutely not. We cannot run a 2,000 Sh- recipe. Shout out to Amy Marr. <laughs> Amy Marr, human goddess. Oh my gosh. Um, she edited my last cookbook. She's the we best. We both have worked with her. And she was just like, guys, like physically, there are not <laughs> enough trees on earth to do a 2,000 <laughs> recipe book. You have to cut it again. Talk so. about a lot of work. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Uh, congratulations. We're going to cut to a quick little commercial intro and we'll be right back chatting more. You are listening to Cat in a Box by Evan Hashi. The following program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. It is so exciting to have this new medium. Posting after the jump has been a huge part of me transitioning from being a blogger to somebody who has sort of real important conversations with people in real life. My show, I I kind of describe it as an audio trade magazine. I learn a ton from the guests every week, whether it's it's restaurants, bars. All the hosts at Heritage all come from different perspectives. Everyone should be listening to this. If you're interested in conservation and and practical approach to renewable food sources, you know, not this big industry. Whether it's history, uh, laws, social policies of food, I think people now take food seriously, and hopefully what's on their plate will become something very special. And I feel that podcasting has a future, giving people information in a format they can really use on the go. We need your support to keep these conversations going. To donate, visit heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. Right, we're back chatting more with Helen Rosner and Sarah Kate Gillingham about their lovely books and also uh, basically food publishing. Um, so you guys have been in or around food media for over a decade. Um, is that right? More or less? Yeah. Yes. Pretty much. Helen, you were at Silver for how many years? I was at Silver for, I was on the full-time staff for about four years. And you saw like the evolution of, you know, the very early days of the digital presence, um, yeah, it changed a lot. I remember I was a contributor like once, and it's changed. Well, you know, I think Sever has been a really um, limber brand when it comes to its digital identity. It took, I think, it's taken print magazines across all genres a, a pretty long time to figure out how to use their websites to the best mm-hmm. advantage. For for years and years and years, um, most magazines had websites. I mean, they would have URLs, but. Um, they were basically just driving subscriptions. Like you'd land on, you know, 
Glamour.com or something like that. And instead of having this incredibly robust amount of content that was unique to the web, they would just sort of be trying to get you to buy print mag subscriptions. And occasionally they'd drop something mm-hmm. in from the print magazine. And, and Sever, like every other food magazine, I think went through a really similar kind of try and fail, try again kind of model mm-hmm. to figure out how to use the website. And one of the great advantages of a food site, um, of, of having a food brand in general, really, is that you have recipes. Right. And recipes, you know, not to get too inside baseball, but recipes behave very <laughs> differently on the internet than non-recipes do. Um, most blogs, for example, run chronologically. And if you write a post about your life or about the news or about whatever it is that you cover... Um, you know, on Tuesday, by the time you make it to Thursday or Friday or a week or a month or a year later, whatever you've written about a while ago might have some like inherent literary merit because you're a good writer, but the content contained within it has moved on. And recipes are forever. Like recipes, you know, we're still cooking out of recipes that were written hundreds of years ago. I mean, nothing changes. So when you're running a website that is built on an archive of recipes, you have to think about the way that information is presented in a different way. Which I think, uh, from a pure like media publishing perspective, puts food magazines at a tremendous advantage over yeah. like a fashion magazine, for oh, example. Well, also, so, how many how many people keep back issues of, you know, like gun and yeah, guns raw, and ammo, or something. you know, or but food magazines they have value. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, gourmet. Oh God, people who keep, have kept their gourmets, people actually go back and look at those. And again, it's that question. A lot of those recipes are probably online. Mm-hmm. But it's that question of wanting to hold it and, and feel it be like crispy and oh I I already I did cook that because there's a, the stain from my wine glass mm-hmm. and there's just something so special about that. Well, I think cooking is inherently super tactile. Yes. I mean, like Sarah Kate was saying earlier, it's people who are interested in cooking and people who find a degree of sort of emotional and social fulfillment in cooking love that sensory experience. So having a book or a magazine plays right into that. So you have an additional challenge when you're a website to create that tactile intimacy without actually being in someone's hands. And hopefully that's growing. More and more people are getting into it. Uh, What are some uh, trends that you seem to find? So, you know, we've we've seen like the the interesting, you know, evolution of print magazines transitioning to web. And there's so many other web publishers out there these days. What's what's coming up next in the pipeline? Um, I, I'll t- I'll start. Um, you know, I, I, like, you I've seen a lot of you know blending of e-commerce within yes. editorial. Yes, I think that's huge. Like Food Fifty Two and yeah, Provision, basically. Yeah, um, you know, I the apartment therapy tried that. We had like a little shop Did a you? long time ago, I and it's so. it's hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm good friends with um, Heidi Swanson, who started oh, 101 Cookbooks. Yeah, she has this she has amazing shop. shop. Right? For sure. She has a storage unit. She has, like, a hand trolley. She and is shipping is out boxes. And it's hard work. I mean, it's it's the same she as being a She has such a, a big readership. Huge. And she sells out of everything. And, it's and she like, has beautiful stuff. She has beautiful stuff. She I'm sure it. it's doing very well for her. But it's hard. It's hard I th- work. I think what it speaks to, and like, again, oh my God, I'm sorry. I'm so inside baseball about this. But selling, when I was at Silver, I and I've always been on the editorial <laughs> side of things, but I, I became pretty good friends with people in our sales and marketing side. And it, it turns out it's really hard to sell ads around food content. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm probably giving up some major secrets and I'll never get a job again. But, um, <laughs> but um, I think that building in e-commerce is a a really good way for editorial to stay afloat because readers love food content. Like I love food content. I can read it 
for forever, but for some reason it hasn't clicked with advertisers yet. So so it's a way to take matters into your own hands. I mean, I think that what, what Heidi has done with 100 co- 101 Cookbooks and what Food 52 has done with Provisions is genius. It's genius. It's a yeah. way for them to say, we're not going to compromise our editorial standards. We're not going to, like, cave to produce, like, 15 kitten top cupcakes or whatever the advertisers want us to be doing. We're going to... Advertise our own stuff. Yeah. We're going to we're gonna we make our own money, yeah. you know? Like, like, we're setting up our own lemonade stand. Like, mm-hmm. I think it's it's brilliant. It's also a way, another way of expanding the brand and knowing that if you come to, you know, if you love what Amanda and Merrill are doing on Food 52, they are tastemakers. They are, they are curators. They curate content. And same with Heidi and now, Swanson. And now they're curating stuff. And Heidi and, and, and Amanda and Merrill have also been amazing at building very visual identities yes. for their brand. Yes. I mean, you can tell one of Jane Ram- James Ransom's Food 52 photos, even if it's completely devoid of context. You know what their visual style right. looks like. And the same with Heidi. Right. So it's a way to buy a piece of their life. So speaking of style, um, what are some of the trends at, with, with regards to content? Like, you guys were sort of joking off uh, <laughs> off the record uh, earlier about bro that brotastic thing, Sarah Cage. <laughs> <laughs> that was off the record. Yeah. Uh, is there is there more of like a sort of like a male tone in a lot of food writing? Because I know more men are cooking, and more of your readership. How much? It's funny. I, there's nothing oh, new for me. I, I sometimes gauge this sort of thing tongue in cheek, but gauge it on the the PR pitches I get. <laughs> I can tell you that. Around Father's Day, the amount of pitches that come in about grilling and men grilling. is not new. So many cookbooks. I mean, that is yeah. that is the whole notion that men grill, which I take it as, and women don't. Right. That has been going on forever. That's not new, but I think what we were talking about off the record was um, how much more of a presence in food media men have now audience yeah it's men have always dominated in the chef world right um and there's reason good reason for that just like women dominate in the pastry chef world it's all about schedule um but i women have traditionally i'd say there have been more women in in food media and now it's there's so many men well there's there's a really and it's just bringing a different a different vibe. different voice for sure. So yeah. I actually, you know, I, I think which that has been interesting has traditionally been a little bit more of a women's yes. space. Though um, there's the terrific writer John Birdsall um, mm-hmm. won a Beard Award last year for an essay he wrote for Lucky Peach called "America, Your Food Is So Gay," mm-hmm. and it um, it's a terrific, terrific, terrific article. It's online. You can Google it. Um, I'm imagining it's the first thing that comes up for "America, Your Food Is So Gay," but. Um, <laughs> He talks a lot, and, and it's been written about elsewhere, too. There there have been some really wonderful investigations into this. The fact that, that food magazines, particularly Lucky magazines Peach. like... Well, Bon Appetit and Gourmet, back when they originally started, they were founded by gay men. Mm-hmm. And um, there actually was like a very strong male presence, but it was a sort of non-traditional male presence. It okay. wasn't the kind of caveman fire knives, Thrilling. meat, like, ugh, kind of bro <laughs> thing. It was a... <laughs> different masculine identity and um the gender politics of professional food culture whether you're talking about restaurants or you're talking about media i think is fascinating because because food is is the home and the hearth and is sort of at its core this traditionally feminine thing and as we as a culture i'm gonna i could talk about this for hours as we as a culture move away from traditional notions of femininity i mean we're three women sitting here and here and i think all of us have in one way or another kind of rejected 
things that we would consider traditional femininity from a 1950s perspective, that might be a massive understatement. Um, <laughs> but similarly, I think that, that men are rejecting some conventional notions of masculinity. I mean, yes. one of the things I was saying before we went on air is that I am a little annoyed, but then at the same time also really, really appreciative that masculine, bro cooking culture mm-hmm. is moving away from only giving a crap about grilling and actually right. starting to care about nourishing and, and warmth warmth and community mm-hmm. and like not cooking for your kids because like you're a bro and you love cooking and like your kids just happen to be there but cooking for your kids because parenting and nourishing and nurturing <laughs> that's part of the is job good f- like it's <laughs> is soul building or whatever and also yeah it's really interesting to see how like trends in just general culture and gender politics around who makes dinner and you know so and so is actually you know, it kind of is going hand in hand with like the editorial, you know, yep. shift shifts around. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. It's interesting people to watch. creating content. Well, I think there's also something um, very performative about home cooking in the last few years. That I sort of think of it as like the Instagramification of home cooking. Yes, like it used to be if you were just making you know, some super easy dinner, like just boiling some pasta and tossing it with butter and Parmesan cheese, which is like one of my all-time favorite meals. You would just make it and then, you know, put it in a bowl and eat it. And now you Instagram it and, you know, you throw your camera over it for a direct overhead shot and put it in some pretty natural light and like, you know, scatter some lemon zest on the table and you get 3,000 likes on Instagram. And like, if it's you're per- Helen Rosner, you oh. get. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think I've maxed out at like 120. But um, <laughs> but Hull. it's performative. Check it out. It's performative, and and I don't want to be accused of stereotyping it's men. Social. It's but social. It's competitive. It's competitive, yeah. though. That's well, the thing. Is it's yeah. like it's shareable. It's shareable. And and maybe it's, competitive. Too. It's it's yeah. the the internet is changing our lives. Like, yeah, it is. Well, we're we're kind of about out of time, but um, what do you think is the best food trend? I guess this is a huge question. Favorite dish you had in 2014? Oh, make oh my it, God. Make it short. I had an amazing dinner a couple of weeks ago at Mark Forgione in Tribeca. And this, mm-hmm. for me, this was the year of going back to restaurants that I've been to millions of times and realizing how amazing they still are, despite the fact that they're not, like, the hottest, coolest thing that opened in, like, one second ago. And I had the tasting menu, and there was this amazing bite that the kitchen sent out that Mark actually brought out himself. It was um, raw swordfish belly with what he called bang-bang sauce. And it was like this super spicy, super sweet, super garlicky, crazy chili sauce. And it was just, it exploded in my mouth in the best possible way. I loved it. Wow. Mm. That sounds really good. Um, Well, just because my my short-term memory is stronger, I'm going to say... I made this pozole last night. I hope I was hoping you're. Yeah, say that. we had yeah. seventy people over for dinner, and um, pozole being like sort of a meat sauce. How many? Well, actually, I made a vegetarian and a oh. uh, um, pork. It's traditionally roast pork, ground pork, and I mm-hmm. ate the vegetarian one. And, it, mm-hmm. and I'm not a vegetarian. It was so delicious. It was green pozole with hominy and chickpeas, and mm. the, I made this um, a green sauce that got stirred into the soup at the end that was tomatillos, cilantro, peppers, garlic, onions, and then you basically fry the sauce to deepen the flavor in Mm. oil. 
and then mix that. It was so good. Mm. And I've, I mean, probably the best food I've had has been made by other people, but I have to say, part of the satisfaction of eating this was I was looking around and I was feeding 70 Mm. people in my house. It was insane. You're amazing. So that was really good. (laughs) Also, I'd worked so hard to finally eat it. It was thanks. That's a good Thank choice God. for feeding a lot of people. A big, you know, hearty, yeah. stewy thing. Yeah. 70, though. 70. Yes. Like, I get impressed if I cook dinner for six. Oh, yeah, oh the goodness. numbers keep going up. But, yeah, that was really good, and it was so simple. Well, I bet you guys are going to have a great holiday spread um, yeah, I have to wherever get on you that. are. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining, and definitely check out Subvert, the new classics cookbooks. It weighs a ton. And the kitchen cookbook, it's beautiful, and it also is pretty heavy, too. And it weighs less. It, it weighs less. <laughs> the Subvert cookbook is pretty also. It is very pretty. <laughs> it's beautiful. It just has a chicken on the cover. I love it. It's got okay, the red so fabric. They're both gorgeous. gorgeous. Everyone go buy both. Gorgeous. All right. Which one is better, though? Okay. Um, <laughs> thanks again, and Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, we'll see you next year on Heritage. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.